Y'all, I'm pumped for tonight. Tuesday nights are my favorite night of the week. It's so much fun to be with you, to see what God's been doing in the midst of our ministry. And I'm super excited for what the Lord might have for us specifically as we continue through our relationships series. And so this, this semester, we've been walking through the series called How To uh, and How To Help Us in Navigating Relationships. And so very first week of this semester, we talked about our relationship with God. The week after that, we talked about our relationship with other people in our community. And then last week, Daniel kicked us off as J term was ended and talked about how we are supposed to pursue wisdom in all of our relationships. And in fact, by pursuing wisdom, the best way that we do that is by pursuing Jesus himself. Now, the theme of the book of Proverbs is that wisdom personified is Jesus. And so if you want to live a wise life, make Jesus first and foremost your pursuit. In the midst of that, as we think about our relationships with other people, it wouldn't make sense for us to pursue wisdom, to pursue Jesus, if we're pursuing a spouse who wasn't doing the same. And so the call for us was to pursue wisdom and to find a spouse who would also be pursuing wisdom. And as we continue through this series, we're going to need a lot of wisdom tonight as we look at this subject. That as we're going through this series, we felt like it would be worthwhile for us to dive into one of the biggest blockages of sin, one of the biggest things that can create barriers between us and our godly relationships. And so tonight, we are talking about lust. And this message is heavy. This message is probably going to be rated explicit on Spotify after this. And so if you're not 17 years old in this room or if you brought your toddler with you, first off, how did you get in here? <laughs> this message may be a lot for us. Now there's probably people here in this room who have trauma in this area and things that have happened in their past. And I want to be gracious with my words as we dive into some of those different areas. But most importantly, this is a topic that we have to talk about as Christians because lust binds us, holds us, and is incredibly hard for us to fight against. So while I want to be cordial in some ways, in other ways we have to be bold and explicit and say how things are so that it, because if we're not talking about this out in the world, if the church isn't talking about it, how are we supposed to navigate through this subject? And out of all the sins that we could talk about, this one causes the most damage to you, your relationship with others, and your relationship with God. And it's all around us in our culture. Here are a few statistics of how lust and sexual sin impacts the world that we are in today. One in five women in the United States experience completed or attempted rape during their lifetime. 84.4% of males and 57% of females ages 14 through 18 viewed porn by the age of 13 years old. 85% of men and 50% of women watch porn on a regular basis. Five years ago, sharing a bed before getting married indicated an 85% chance of divorce if the couple decided to get married. And over the last 10 years, this number has dropped, but the reasoning by non-Christian statistics, the reasoning for this is that because people are getting, less often, are getting married less often in general. Divorce rates, although they've gone down because people haven't been getting married, are still incredibly high. By the age of 30, one in three people will have had an STD. The Telegraph released a study that believes that by the year 2050, 
more people will have sex with robots than they do with real people. That means that if y'all are planning on having a family someday, when your kids are your age, it will be more normal for your kids to sleep with a machine than it is for them to sleep with another person. Let that sink in. Friends, can we see how rampant this sin is taking over our culture, how it's been out, how it has had a grip on our culture already, and how this sin can lead us into pain and suffering? And in light of that, the Bible has much to say about it. The Bible has much to say to protect us from this sin, to help us to experience true life in Jesus. It has a lot to say on how we can heal from these various sins and calls for us to find our hope in Jesus as a result. And so PC3, my hope for tonight, my prayer for you, is that for us as a people, that we would see the pain of lust and what it causes, and that we would zealously do everything we can to be free from this vice in our lives. Because we acknowledge that Jesus is better. Would we here at PC3 be a people who experience both freedom and redemption from this struggle? And so as we dive into this heavy topic, we have three points that we're going to use to help us navigate through uh, 1 Corinthians 6. And so if you guys have your Bibles, you can start to head there. And the three thoughts that we're going to be covering are this. The cause of lust, the cost of lust, and the cure for lust. So the cause of lust, the second point, that's my bad, should say the cost of lust and the cure for lust. The cause, the cost, and the cure. We're going to 1 Corinthians 6. PC3, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we acknowledge that you are good and that you are kind. Father, that you love us more than we could ever imagine. God, that you, when you have redeemed a sinner, God, when you've taken them from from where they were, Father, and you have given them your life, God, that you've restored them, God, you've given them a new identity, God, you love them immensely. Jesus, in light of knowing how much you love us, God, we heed your warnings throughout the scriptures that this is a sin that we have to run from and that we have to flee from. God, would we passionately and zealously, God, not because we're trying to earn your love, not because we're just trying to be good people, not even because we're trying to avoid all the bad effects of what lust does to us, but God, because we love you and delight in you, Father, would we put our old ways behind us? God, would this message, as your Holy Spirit works in this room, God, would it humble us? God, would it exalt you? God, that we would look to you as a result of it. And Father, will we continue to experience freedom and be changed here in this room? God, because you are working here because your Holy Spirit is with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, before we dive into our scripture, I want to kick off with a definition for lust and sexual immorality. And so here's the definition that I've got for you guys. That lust or sexual immorality is willfully allowing pleasurable gratification of wrongfully directed sexual desire. I'm going to slow that down one more time. Lust is when we willfully allow pleasurable gratification of wrongfully directed sexual desire. We're going to break that down into three different parts. And so first off, lust, it's willfully allowing, which means that's something that happens not on accident. 
Lust is not looking at a person for the first time, and it's not noticing that someone is beautiful, but rather it's a choice that you actively participate in with your mind, your heart, or your actions. Two, it is pleasurable gratification. That means that we enjoy it. Even when we are merely looking to enjoy sexual pleasure, when we are contemplating sexual activity, we may feel a pleasurable sexual buzz as a result. Three, the most important part is that it's wrongfully directed. And so God has created us to enjoy sex. He's giving us sexual experiences as a thing that is a gift from him. However, it's only meant to be experienced underneath correct circumstances. If someone is married and they do not have a desire to sleep with their husband or wife, that is actually an issue. We're supposed to experience sexual interaction in marriage as part of its design. And when we talk about lust, what we are talking about is in the negative term is used to describe when someone is sexually desiring someone else outside of the bonds of marriage. It is not an orientation that we have, but it is the contemplative thought or action. So, sex is a good thing, but only within the bounds that God has given to us. And so with that definition, as we keep that in mind, let's dive into 1 Corinthians 6, looking at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food, This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. And so Paul begins here with the phrase, I am allowed to do anything. Other translations might be more helpful in saying, all things are lawful to me. What Paul is saying here is maybe similar to what would be seen in Colossians 2, where, we as belie- where Paul is communicating to the believers in Colossae, saying that we as believers are not bound to the old laws of the Old Testament. That we don't have to add laws into following God or pursuing Christ. That we don't have to abstain from certain foods. We don't have to wear clothing that is only made of a single material. It might even be okay for you all to get tattoos. To try to follow the Old Testament laws now that Christ has fulfilled the law is adding to our Old Testament, adding, taking the Old Testament laws and adding it to our New Testament theology, we are adding to the gospel. And because of that, by trying to earn our way to heaven, Paul is saying here, the old ways are worthless and there's no point to it. What he's communicating is that Jesus is enough, so you don't have to do things in the Old Testament like they used to. However, as Paul continues on with this by saying that we have freedom and we don't have to be bound by anything, he responds to his own statement, giving an apologetic, but I must not become a slave to anything, for not all things are helpful. Paul here is addressing an issue in the Corinthian church. That these people have taken the grace of Jesus, this freedom from a long list of laws, and they have applied this freedom to the wrong areas of their lives. They use liberty as a license to sin. They said, because the scripture is not found in the Bible that says that, because I don't see anything in the scriptures that says, I'm not supposed to masturbate, well, that must mean that it's actually okay for me to do that. But this is not the case. 
See, what the church in Corinthians is, the church in Corinth is refusing to do is they, they refuse to use wisdom to guide their lives. Where Paul said that there is freedom to eat any food or to fulfill the appetites of their stomach, there is not freedom for us to explore anything that may supply our appetite for sex. That when you feel hungry, it would be good for you to go and eat food, but just because you have sexual desire does not mean that you can satisfy it in any way that sounds nourishing. He declares, the body is not for sexual immorality, but your body is for the Lord. And because your body is connected to the Lord, we should not connect our body to any sexual immorality. This means that anything that isn't, satis- that isn't satisfying our sexual desires in the ways that is prescribed by God will lead us into pain and suffering and will lead us away from God. Matthew 5 gives a proclamation for how we're supposed to respond to this sin, uh, of how this sin goes deep in our hearts. And in Matthew 5, verse 27, it says this, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Where people may think that's a sin to simply, that the only sin is to have sex outside of marriage and to only go all the way outside the bonds of marriage, Jesus moves the line back to include anything in the realm of lust is a sin. Jesus isn't looking for our performance or for us to make sure that we get to a certain line and then stop. He is looking for a pure heart. This means that any sexual acts outside of marriage, any type of sex, or even touching someone sexually when you are not married to them is a sin. Being turned on through making out with someone is a sin. Masturbation would be a sin. Pornography, Instagram, hashtag chasing, photos, videos, movies, apps, virtual reality are sins. Friends, you are given freedom through the gospel that you are no longer changed, that you are no longer charged to follow a bunch of different rules, but we are not supposed to use that freedom to be free of God's purpose for our lives. That we've been given freedom to enjoy God and to enjoy the free gifts that he has given us but we cannot use our freedom and let it be a license for sin. Sex is a good thing, but only in God's purpose for us. When a good thing like sex happens outside the bonds of marriage, it becomes lust and it becomes painful. When it gets colder outside, uh, Rochelle and I become way more prone to watching movies together. And it's so like last year, we watched the Marvel series, and this year we're trying to not, knock out a few TV shows that Rochelle never grew up in her childhood because she grew up under a rock. And um, we're working on it. And like in that, when it's like cold outside, we like to turn on the fireplace and to help warm ourselves up. And like fire in the fireplace is a really good and really beautiful thing. Helps keep us warm on cold nights so that we don't have to freeze in our apartment. But what happens then If the fire were to escape out of the fireplace, it will destroy everything that it touches. Me and Rochelle would be freaking out. We would get out of there. We would want to get as far away as possible from the fire if it began to spread throughout our apartment. Fire in a fireplace is good. It's incredible. Fire any place else is dangerous and painful. Sex is good in marriage. It's incredible. 
but sex outside of marriage is lust manifested and it's going to lead to pain and suffering. Let's explore a little bit more into the cost of lust. Let's continue on with our verses. The cost of lust. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united unto one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. As Paul continues in his argument, he declares to the church in Corinth that their sexual lives have a connection to their relationship with Jesus. Everything about who you are as a Christian is to be influenced by your walk with God. Your life with Christ is not just Sunday mornings, it's not Tuesday nights, and it's not whenever you decide to go to city group. It's an all-encapsulating and is the most important thing about you. Therefore, your body and what you do with it must be impacted by your relationship with Jesus and vice versa. Every sin that you commit affects your walk with God. And if that is true, this is especially related to sexual sin because of its bonding effects. Paul reminds us that when we have sex, we are bonding ourselves to another person. And this is true physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But oftentimes with the effects of pornography, the, the effects of pornography and lust will become a gateway to other sexual sins because of this bonding that happens in our brains chemically. Now, Paul didn't understand 2,000 years ago the sciences be, well, of what was going on inside of our brains and how, uh, how different chemicals are released, but as time and time again, the, the rest of the world, the sciences of the world are catching up with what the scriptures have been declaring for thousands of years. When we indulge in sexual activity, a chemical gets released in our brain called dopamine, which is called the happiness chemical. And now what should happen is that when you experience this chemical being released in your brain, it is a bonding chemical that allows you to connect to the thing that you're experiencing joy from, and it makes your body like glue to that specific thing. That your body goes, hey, this feels good. I want to remember this. And so in order to keep, make sure that this keeps happening again, I'm going to take a picture of this. I'm going to make a mental note that this is something that is good for me and that I want more of it. However, that chemical is, when that chemical, so when that chemical is used for something good, when it's found inside the bonds of marriage, and then you're experiencing pleasure while being with your significant other, that is a good design from God, that you're experiencing intimacy with this person, and God wants us to experience intimacy, he wants us to be close to our significant other, and so we are being bonded to that person through these chemicals being released. But what then happens when we begin experiencing dopamine released in places where we should not? When we experience sexual experiences with someone else or even objects and dopamine gets released, it's devastating because you're being bonded with something that isn't your husband or wife. And there are terrible results from that. We look at pornography and how dopamine is directly correlating with that. And what happens as your brain is on dopamine while watching pornography, your, your, body, your brain actually produces too much of the chemical. And so your brain, because it doesn't know what to do with this, this influx of dopamine coming in, and it goes, hey, we're on overload right now. We have to do something about it. 
your brain is in control of you taking in the dopamine. And so the brain does it the only thing that it can do, and it kills the receptors of your dopamine. It kills your happiness receptors. And so that when you go back to that image again a second time, and you're looking at it, for whatever reason, you don't feel as much pleasure from it as you did the first time. That's because your dopamine levels are actually lower than where they were before. And so in you, your body is looking, okay, we want dopamine, we're looking for this happiness chemical, I've got to look at something else. And so then your mind continues, it's not satisfied with what it was looking at before, and so you watch as the fifth grader who was looking at people in their underwear, and that was satisfying to them, and then a few years down the line, they're watching bondage porn, rape, animal porn, and they don't know why. They may even hate the bondage that they're in in those moments but their dopamine levels have been lowered so significantly through their addiction, through their life, that it's harder and harder for them to experience joy anywhere. Masturbation does the exact same thing. That leads to sexual dysfunction because you're bonding with what you're not supposed to. It leads to premature ejaculation in both men and women and makes sex less enjoyable. There are countless studies, tons and tons of research, and Terrible stories about how you see people like kids that uh, were too afraid uh, of to, that they didn't want to masturbate inside their home. Uh, so there was a case where a kid would hide out in the garage and he would hide in his dad's old car because that was a place where he didn't have to worry about his dad finding him. And then what happened later in his life is that as he tried to have sex, he actually couldn't because he needed to be inside of a car in order for him to get turned on. Stories of so many people in specific situations where they were allowed to pursue this sin unguarded. In whatever situation they were in, they bonded themselves into those places and they were unable to enjoy sex in the way that it was designed because they were bonded with things that they were not supposed to be bonded to. Friends, these sins, by giving into lust, you are bonding yourself to what is not good But the truth is that you belong, and what you should be doing is that you belong to God. Your body belongs to your husband or wife, and if you satisfy the thirst of your sexual desire in the wrong way, it is going to haunt you for years to come. It's like if you're in the middle of the ocean and you're thirsty, uh, and you're looking for something to drink, but all you have around you is salt water. And it looks good, it looks like it might satisfy you, it's just like the water that you have at home from your own faucet. But as you go and drink it, you're not going to come up satisfied. In fact, it's just going to make you more thirsty because your body doesn't digest it. And so you actually get thirstier from that, and what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to drink more and more of it. You're going to be confused as you're not being satisfied by this thing that looks good, looks like it should satisfy, but inevitably is just not enough for you. And if you keep drinking that ocean water, the result of it is that it's just going to kill you faster. Friends, my fear for us as a people is that if we don't kill our sexual sins, then we are going to find ourselves in little marriage hells where we are married to someone who is incredible, who loves Jesus, who is everything that we might be looking for through Christ, and yet we are unable to enjoy them because we have programmed our minds for years and decades to thrive off variety rather than commitment. That because you programmed your mind not the way that God designed it, but what the world has lied to you about, that you're not going to be able to find the fulfillment that God wants you to experience through it. So PC3, my friends, whatever the cost, 
you do not drink that water. That the cost of lust is too great. And I don't want you guys to have to bear that in your future marriages for decades. So what do we do? What if I'm here in this room and I've made mistakes? Maybe you're here and you already have 10 years of addiction to pornography underneath your belt, or maybe your body count is higher than you would want to confess to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we have hope? And the answer is absolutely yes, you do. First, we're going to talk about what needs to happen now, and then we're going to talk about our greater cure and our greater hope. So, let's look at the cure for lust. Read with me verses 18 through 20. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So the passage here is clear. How should we deal with sexual sin in our lives? Should we get close to it? Is it okay to put myself in situations where I could possibly have a sexual encounter and other people won't hear about it? No. Run from sexual sin, flee from it. We are all, we've already covered that this sin is devastating, that the Bible research testimonies, sexual sin is not a vice that you want to play with. So therefore, your response must be to run from it. How do we run? Sometimes you physically need to run out of situations to get away from it. You may, sometimes you may need to set restrictions on what you're allowed, allowing yourself to do. Again, Christ has bought your freedom, that you're not subject to a bunch of laws in order to enter into a relationship with Jesus. But in our freedom, we want to do everything that we can to experience what's actually going to bring us satisfaction. And that means to pursue Jesus. And pursuing Jesus, we can't run towards sin and run towards him at the same time. And so in this, we need to sometimes set boundaries for our lives to put restrictions on ourselves, not out of legalism, not because, hey, I need to do this because someone else told me to. Not doing this because I'm just adding a bunch of different laws to the gospel if I want to be saved someday. But because you love Jesus, because you love the people in your life, you want to flee from these sins. And that is why you would put these laws in place for your life. First, before you do anything, you need to confess your sins. I'll preach about James 5.16 every single week here for like the rest of my life because I experienced such freedom when I confessed my sins for the first time to my brothers in Christ. Then when I, got, when I got sins out there, shame and guilt that I was feeling for years and years and years, things I had never shared with anyone, and when I was able to share that with brothers and sisters, brothers, uh, some, some things with sisters, not everything. I was able to share that with brothers in Christ, and I was able to share literally every stupid de- detail. When I was able to share about my pornography addiction, when I was able to share about my sexual encounters, and I was able to get those things out for the first time when I was a freshman in college, the freedom that got washed over me as people preached the gospel to me, I literally felt a burden lifted off my shoulders. If you want to defeat sexual sin in your life, I know it's full of shame, I know it's full of guilt, I know it's something that feels dirty and you don't want to share with other people, but if you want to experience freedom in it, you cannot go into this fight by yourself. You need a group of people who love Jesus to go into this battle with you. And so friends, 
confess your sins to one another, ask people to pray for you, ask them to remind you of what Jesus did for you on the cross and that Jesus loves you and that there's nothing you can do to lose his love. Two, very first things. If you watch pornography, you need to confess it to your C-group leader or confess that to a staff member. You either need to get rid of your software, you either need to get, get software to block it on your devices. Uh, I've got covenant eyes on my computer, on my phone, that literally blocks me from being able to access anything in that realm. And what it does is it literally takes screenshots of my search history, sends it to a group of men on a weekly basis, they go through it, and they look for anything that might even be kind of sketch, and we get to have conversations about it. I've been called out multiple times on different things. I'm so thankful for my brothers in Christ for doing that with me. And so, if you can't get rid, if you can't get rid of your devices, you need to at least put some software in those places if that is a sin you struggle with. And the response might be that you just simply need to get rid of your phone or get rid of your laptop. I know it's a pain. I know that it's going to make your life harder and tougher, and it's going to be harder to navigate through things. But you have to ask yourself, how much do I love Jesus and how much do I want to be free of this sin? Flee from sexual immorality. Third list of things I think will be helpful to us, and this is probably where I might make some enemies. If you're dating someone, you need to set good, healthy boundaries. But I think, like, the first thing that you should talk about is that if you can identify patterns in your life where you guys have struggled with sexual sin in the past, you need to identify what those patterns are and begin to put restrictions on it. Uh, for Rochelle and I, we had to put boundaries on how late we were allowed to hang out. That even when we hung out in groups, that we found that if other people were to leave the room and leave us to just ourselves, that maybe we were with a group of people and then we found a moment alone that, man, it was a struggle for us to be together. And so one of the deadlines we had to put in our life was to say, hey, after 10 p.m., 10 p.m., which is like miserable. Like I stay up until three or four. Uh, like 10 p.m., you know, even if I was in a group of people, even with other Christians outside of our city group, I had to go home and leave wherever Rochelle was at. And it was hard and it was tough. But if I love, if I loved Rochelle, if I cared about her, I care about her walk with God, I don't want to put herself in situations where she's going to be frustrated with me or frustrated in her relationship with Jesus. Because I loved her, because I loved Jesus myself, I want to do whatever it was to, ca to cast sin out of my life. Another one that could make me enemies. On your wedding day, if I were to ask you this question, would you rather look at your husband and wife and be able to say, I kissed more people or I kissed less people? I think most of you here in this room would not be, oh yeah, I'm a dude, I'm gonna kiss as many girls as possible and on our wedding day, I can't wait to like, I can't wait to tell my wife about it. I don't think that's where anyone here in this room is. But if that's the truth, if we say, I wanna go to my wedding day as holy as possible, no matter where I've been in the past, if that's your conviction over it, why would you be kissing people that, you have, that you're not moving towards marriage with? That if you're not engaged with someone, if you're not moving into that direction, if you say, hey, I only, want to kiss I only want to kiss my wife, that's like my end goal of where I want to go, I only want to kiss my husband, 
the safest way for you to actually get there and for that to be true of you is not to kiss anyone that you're dating, but waiting for someone to get that level of commitment to where you are pursuing a marriage, you're pursuing a wedding, where you guys have agreed that that's where you want to go, and then in response to that, hey, that's when it's actually okay for us to kiss. Now again, I'm giving this to all to you guys as wisdom. There's nothing in the Bible that tells you that you need to go to bed at 10 p.m. and you can't be with the other person. There's nothing in the Bible that says when you're allowed to kiss someone, when you're not allowed to kiss someone, uh, as long as it doesn't lead you into sexual sin. There's nothing in the Bible that says distinctly all these boundaries. These are things for you to walk through in community, knowing yourself, knowing your own struggles, and to communicate with a group of people and say, hey, this is where I've struggled. How would you help me, or what do you recommend for me to avoid the sexual sin in the future in order to pursue holiness with my significant other? What logically makes sense for me to start doing? Wherever you're at, whatever you have done in the past, through the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you have more than what you need to conquer this sin. I know that's not an easy journey. It's not one where you're likely going to walk out of here tonight and you're going to go, hey, I'm free. I'm never going to sin this area ever again, especially if you've been there. But friends, if you don't start walking in the other direction, you're never going to get to the destination that you want. If I left this sermon here, I think two things would be true about what we've talked about so far. So in in a book that I've got called Expositional Preaching, uh, and it talks about what are we supposed to talk about as we preach through the scriptures, there are three different qualities, and this is what I pray for to be true of every single sermon that we preach. One, there's a call to humble the sinner. That as you go to church on Sundays, as you hear preaching from, the, from any pulpit, one of the things that should be happening is that your sin should be revealed to you as you're encountering the word of God. Number three, not number two, number three is that it should be producing life change in your life. That, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I've been humbled in my sin. I'm going to go live my life differently as a result of it. What's missing and what we need to take a moment to just reflect on and bask in is that God needs to be ex- exalted in our minds. God bought you with a price. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a prophet named Hosea. And we see that this man is given a mission by God, a command to go and marry a prostitute. It is a super weird story. I remember reading it in youth group when I was in middle school, and I don't think I understood the story at all. Uh, I remember the pastor asked me, hey, what's the, what's the, what's the purpose of the story? Uh, and my response was literally, don't marry prostitutes named Comer, uh, which is pretty easy. Um, but like, that was my response. I did not get it. But as I've walked through the story and understood it as time has gone on, it has changed so much my view of who Jesus is. So God tells the prophet Hosea and says, go find a prostitute, get married to her, and have children with her. And so Hosea obeys the Lord, and he goes, and he finds this prostitute named Gomer, and he purchases her, and she becomes his wife. They have children together, and the story gets rough. Sometime after getting married, although Gomer is married to this man of God, this prophet, the guy who takes care of her, who provides for her every need, who loves her and cherishes her, 
Although Hosea is doing everything that a godly man should do as her husband, even though he's being obedient to God, he finds that he looks for his wife one day, and he finds out that she has actually gone back to her old way of life and has become a prostitute again. And so Hosea goes looking for his wife, and in a way that I imagine was like when God was going through the garden of, uh, of going through the Garden of Eden and looking for Adam and Eve and wondering where they had gone, he finds his wife. And when he says, hey, it's time for you to come home now, he finds out that she is now owned by another man, that she has sold herself back into prostitution. That when she was satisfied, she was taken care of, she didn't have any needs of her own that were not being met, she decided that she needed to go back into her old way of life and prostituting herself and selling her to other lovers that did not care about her. While Hosea would argue that this woman was his bride, the man would argue that he did not care and that Hosea had to pay up. And so what did Hosea do? He would pay the money and he would purchase his wife back once again. Why? Here's what it says in chapter 3, verse 1 of Hosea. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. The depiction of a holy man going and buying his wife, whom he had already purchased, going to purchase his wife, who was already his, is how Jesus loves you, Christian. That the story of the gospel is that God created everything in the beginning. And as he looked over his creation, as the creator of it all, he owned it all, and everything was good. But going to chapter 3 in Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve, they decide that they don't trust God. They don't believe in his promises. They want to be gods themselves. And they break the one rule that they were never supposed to break. And because of that, sin now runs rampant in our world. That even when we try to follow God, even when we try to be good enough, when we try to be perfect, when we try to hit a standard that is high enough in order to make our way into heaven, there's nothing that we can do to actually be good enough. And God seeing us, seeing the fact that we are imperfect, seeing the fact that he, that he wanted to be with us, but he's a good judge who had to judge sin as a response to it, Jesus was sent to die on the cross for our sins. That we already belong to God, but because we had chosen other idols, because we had chosen other things, because we have basked in sexual sin and a plethora of other ones, even though we had committed sin after sin and we had committed adultery against our God, Jesus would come and he would purchase us again. That Jesus didn't save you looking at you and saying, hey, now that, I've, now that you are mine, I'm hoping that you get cleaned up. No, when Jesus actually came, we were already his, we had already messed up, and he came to purchase us once again. That it's not about us that once we become Christians, after we place our faith in him, man, I'm supposed to be holy and perfect and righteous, otherwise I'm going to lose the love of God. But what God proved to us in sending Hosea to go and love Gomer is that even after we commit sin after sin after sin and we fail time and time again, he's ready to purchase us because the purchasing happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. That Jesus, the most wonderful and beautiful person to ever live, died on the cross and poured out his blood so that you could be in a relationship with him. So that wherever you're at, whether your body counts high, whether you've struggled with pornography for, forever, whether you are struggling with a plethora of sexual sins, if Jesus has saved you, he knew everything you were going to do, and he does not regret his decision. 
That your worth is not found the way that you've chosen to live your life, because if it was, you'd be worthless. But your worth is found in who has adopted you into his family, whose name is written on your heart, who has saved you, who has paid a high price for you. And so Christians, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, the only thing that Jesus has for you is grace and forgiveness. I remember there's a, a story that I heard. Um, that there's this guy, he was, he was going through downtown L.A., and he went into this shop to look at T-shirts. And he had spilled something on his shirt, and so he was just looking for a replacement. And the first shirt that he pulls off the rack, uh, the price of it was $900. And he looked at it, and he looked at his white hangs that he, was, that he was wearing down here, and he was like, dude, I don't see a difference. And he goes up to the counter, and he asks him, hey, what makes this T-shirt $600. Like, is this shirt going to heal me? And the guy's like, nope. Okay. Well, is there like gold lace within this thing that I can't see? Is there something about the shirt that I'm just missing? Like, is there information that's not here that makes the shirt very valuable? No. It is just a beefy white hangs t-shirt. And he says, well, explain to me then how my t-shirt was $5, but this one is over, is several hundred dollars. How can that be? And the man looks at him and says, dude, it has nothing to do with the shirt. It has to do with the designer of the shirt. That whose name is on the shirt is actually what gives it value, not what the shirt is itself. We as Christians, our value is not in what we bring to the table, but our value comes from whose name is written on us, and his name is Jesus. That you get to find worth and joy and love God for the rest of eternity, not because you've lived a righteous and holy life, but simply because he is full of grace and because he is full of mercy and he has bought you. How high was the cost to purchase you back? It was the blood of Jesus. So friends, no matter how many times you've sinned, Whenever you ask yourself, man, am I worthwhile? Am I worth saving? Am I, am I worth God's love? All you need to do is simply look back at the cross. That your scarlet sins have no power should they ever be met with the grace and mercy of Jesus. And so if you're here in this room and you have not placed your faith in God, if you have this view of God that he's waiting for you to get perfect, he's waiting for you to be holy, he's waiting for you to get your life together, that's never going to happen. Jesus is waiting for you with open arms because he has already paid the price of the gap between you and him. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to experience his redemption. If you're a Christian here in this room, the first call for you is to flee from sexual sin at all costs. To do whatever you can to run away from it. That the cost of sexual sin, it's not worth paying. In remembering the price that Jesus paid, that he poured out his blood for you, despite your sexual immorality, remember that nothing you do will change his affections for you, that you have freedom. Friends, Jesus, whatever, whatever you've done in the past, Jesus can redeem you. I'm a walking testimony of I've been addicted to pornography, committing sexual sin, atrocious things throughout my life. And yet, as I've experienced freedom and I've grown my relationship with Jesus, I see that he's made me a new creation. And so dudes in the room, if you're there, if you feel hopeless, if you don't know what to do, y'all, come talk to me, come talk to Daniel. Let's remind you of the gospel and let's help you to experience this redemption that Jesus has for you. Ladies, go talk to Hannah. 
uh, Rochelle, I'm sure, would be down to talk to you as well. Friends, don't stay where you're at. Know that Jesus loves you, that he cares for you, and that he has so much more for you. Remember your identity, that you are free, that you are redeemed, and that you are pure in the, lo- in the eyes of Jesus. PC3, let's pray.